Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined this week by a special guest, Alexandra Philandra, a political scientist at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Alexandra, it's wonderful having you on the show for the first time. Welcome to The Politics Guys. Thank you, Trey. I'm really excited to be with you. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show and to kind of get uh, a unique and a new perspective. It's always fun talking with somebody um, new. Um, But listeners, before we get into that, uh, I need to make a correction for last week. Uh, Last week, one of our sharp-eared listeners, Eric, thank you, Eric, um, you caught a really big mistake of mine. I was speaking about the Kavanaugh nomination, and I noted that Justice Kennedy with withdrew his support from Kavanaugh. That was a big oops. We had been talking about Kennedy, but what I actually meant to say, Eric, and my apologies, was Stevens. Um, And so Stevens had actually pulled his support uh, from Kavanaugh. Uh, And so it was not Kennedy. So again, thank you so much, Eric, for paying enough attention and letting us know that we can make those kind of corrections on the air. And I appreciate that a lot. And as always, thank you listeners for paying attention and just listening to the show. Um, So this week, let's hope that we can get through everything without any corrections. But if we can't, let us know at the Politics Guys uh, uh, website. So this week, one of the big things that has been going on, Alexandra, is been kind of, I think, two parts to the Trump midterm pitch. And I think one half of this midterm strategy seems to be, as Politico has put it, to make it about it himself. Recently at a rally, he said, quote, I'm not on the ballot, but in a certain way, I'm on the ballot. So please go out and vote. So his pitch is really going to be on the economy, trade deals, low employment, uh, elimination of regulations. And most recently, and this is something we've been talking about a lot on the show, uh, and that is the appointment of Kavanaugh. And you don't have to look any further than his comments during the swearing in ceremony to see that I think that President Trump is making Kavanaugh a midterm election issue. Uh, He said, quote, on behalf of our nation, I want to apologize to Brett and the entire Kavanaugh family for the terrible pain and suffering you've been forced to endure. What happened was, and I'm going to continue, a campaign of political, of personal destruction, political and personal destruction based on lies and deceptions. And so for me, behind this seems to be a strategy of voters, you need to look out for those Democrats. They're going to screw things up. And then this week, President Trump doubles down on that with an op-ed in the USA Today where he warns that Democrats will destroy Medicare dishonestly, uh, creating what he says is a Medicare for all. And his argument is that, quote, centrist Democratic Party is dead. The new Democrats are radical socialists, end quote. And so he is looking out for us. And so this seems to kind of be the themes that are emerging for the midterm election. We have these two, those moments, uh, his, his comments about Kavanaugh and the apology. We have the op-ed. Alexander, what do you see emerging here out of each of these? Or what do you think they mean for midterms? 
Well, Trey, I see sort of uh, going back to the Nixon playbook of um, the late 60s and trying to sort of resurrect some of the narratives about radical politics that uh, emerged after the 1968, well, 65 to 68 riots, the, the hot summers of that era. Um, and it seems that there is sort of an effort. The Trump administration and even the Trump campaign before that sort of looked back at the time of uh, the Nixon administration in terms of framing a lot of, um, of its narratives. Uh, so I think there is to an extent, like again, to pulling from that narrative of law and order, of radicalism, trying to portray the Democrats as um, extremists, as socialists, as radicals. Uh, there was this like really hilarious story um, uh, in the news yesterday out of Arizona. I don't know if you noticed that mm. about two Republican operatives uh, who showed up at the campaign offices of the Democratic contender there uh, with a jar of, uh, of money uh, and uh, claimed to be the representatives of the Northern Arizona University uh, Communist Party. Oh. And uh, so it was like a, another one of those uh, sort of uh, attempts to try to catch a Democrat and associate them with some kind of fringe um, politics. And uh, it's, there seems to be this effort to really brand um, the Democratic Party as, as a radical uh, party, which is uh, rather funny because it's actually, for a lot of people, it's, it's quite a moderate, um, very, very centrist. Uh, approach to politics. But what is very interesting to me as a political scientist is not so much the narrative which is expected. It's actually that the president feels the need to write an op-ed in the USA Today. What does that tell us about Trump's feelings about the bully pulpit? Um, the, the president has so much power to um, through the White House to promote a narrative. Um, I I'm not a presidential uh, scholar, so you may be able to tell me. Has there been other presidents who write opeds in the newspapers? I mean, we know that you know the Twitter phenomenon is a Trump phenomenon, and that basically reaching the audience directly. Uh, whether through tr Twitter or through, you know, an op-ed, which in theory is supposed to be unfiltered perspective, right, of, uh, of the president. But this is so unusual to me and like so surprising. And I am wondering, you know, what does that tell us um, in terms of how Trump himself and the White House thinks about channels of communication and also about, you know, where exactly, how limited is their uh, ability to reach out to people and, and the power that, how limited it must be, the power to have, uh, to communicate um, with the public. It just, 
seemed a very unusual, unexpected move um, to publish an op-ed in uh, in USA Today. Just I, I was like stunned by uh, just the fact of the op-ed. The content of the op-ed was equally uh, interesting because um, factually, pretty much everything in there was wrong. Um, but I'm not. I, I'm not sure I can follow the, str the strategic thinking behind mm -hmm. that particular tactic. I understand definitely the push that he's trying to personalize the midterms and uh, make it about him and his choices. And definitely the Kavanaugh uh, nomination is front and center in that because to him, that is a huge success that came at, after a very big fight. So, you know, if you look at it from uh, an apprentice type of framework, there was a, a really big um, race that took place and the right side uh, prevailed. And now uh, Trump expects um, to be rewarded by the base uh, for managing to get um base to win this is about mm -hmm. essentially uh winning um and uh so that that is consistent i think uh with uh expectations about trump i also think that um from the perspective of McConnell, Senator McConnell and the Republican leadership they seem to think that this has energized the base. And uh, if in uh, a couple of months ago, they, a lot of people may not have been as enthusiastic about hitching their wagon too close to Trump out of fear of the Democratic response. Today, it seems that they feel that actually that may protect them because they expect that due to a rising enthusiasm in the Republican base, they may get um, basically elected, uh, even overcome uh, a blue wave. Mm -hmm. But I'm mm -hmm. still curious about the, the tactic or the strategy of using an OPED. It's just very strange. Well, I, I won't disagree on the front that it is definitely uh, unique to take that route. But I think as we think and we have begun to understand Trump as a president more, this is not maybe as surprising when you put it into the context of President Trump. And you'd actually talked about uh, the, the, the Twitter feed of the president. And I think a lot of people did not consider the power uh, that uh, that presidents would have by going around the traditional channels of media. And, and Trump has taken that to an additional level where he doesn't just go around it. He's actually delegitimized uh, the, the traditional sources of media, right? It's, it's, it's the hashtag fake news. And I, so it, it's talking from a purely strategic perspective, doing the op-ed fits into that pattern for me. So I, I guess I was not as surprised as many were uh, to see that he was going to do an op-ed and try to go directly and, and to use that kind of publication for the op-ed. 
And I, and I think what's interesting about it is I think he actually is hitting on a nerve. And as listeners will know, uh, I, I'm not a, a Trump supporter. I, I, it's not my direction. Uh, but I, I think he's actually making the right move. So I'm going to give Trump some credit for once, listeners. I know that's going to make some of you happy. Uh, but, you know, you talk about Democrats being centrists. But I would say I don't think that is going to be uh, the popular perception because the the most well-known Democrats right now are going to be the Democrats who are embracing democratic socialism. And while that may not be the actual uh, median of the party, it certainly is the part of the party that is getting the most press. And so him to come out and say, look, we have to oppose this element, the radical socialist, as he's calling it. It seems like a, a really great strategy, especially in the wake of the Ka uh, the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation hearings, from my point of view. Because again, here in the Kavanaugh hearings, you are going to basically set this up as the the radicals were trying to stop the normal order of business. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't have been stopped this long. We got it through anyway. And so now you can kind of we can have the Trump vote again. And you were talking about that. And, and I agree that kind of personalization uh, of the Trump vote. Now, I mean, so from your point of view, do you think that this is you had said that, you know, it's mainly full of factual lies. But as we well know, uh, there's a difference between. Is something being factual and is something effective? Uh, so on the effective side, do you do you think that this what you call the unusual move? Is it if do you think it's going to be effective? I, I kind of think it is. I don't know. I am uh, hesitant to to say that um, because already we are seeing that uh, the most recent polls, the post Kavanaugh. Um, polls from 538 show that the democratic enthusiasm is bouncing back. Um, we are seeing uh, continues of very contradictory moves uh, on the part of Trump that are very uh, disqui disquieting in terms of like disconcerting in terms of um, uh, American interests and American values. Um, and um, I, I just, it's hard for me to see how this OPED is really going to rally the troops. I understand the motivation in terms of, okay, older people uh, read traditional media and Medicare, Medicare is for uh the 65 plus crowd, mm -hmm. so um, who are also more likely A to vote, A, B to vote Republican. Um, so it is sort of an attempt for the for Trump to get free media coverage, essentially uh, for his party and for his uh, uh, his perspective. And I think you're right know. there when you talk about the the age, the age grouping, right? I mean, we know uh, the older you are. I mean, this is a long-standing political science truth, listeners. Uh, age correlates highly with likelihood to vote, and that nowhere is that more important in midterm elections when you're when you're not generally looking at at phenomenal turnout. Uh, so, you know, on that front, I, I agree. But I kind of continue, continue. So it's, uh, but I'm not sure if this is. Yes, I mean. If this translates into more 
press coverage of Trump and of this particular issue. Uh, and, you know, people talked about this uh, op-ed for quite a time. Um, then it's a significant free press in the context of an election, uh, you know, basically uh, that discusses Trump. And from his perspective, all press is good press, right? Of course, like of course. you want attention. Um, so, but given what we have experienced in the Trump era, which is that the news cycle doesn't even make it to 24 hours because something new and really uh, important and unexpected comes up, like it is the case now with um, the murder of uh, the Saudi journalist. And I know we'll talk more about that will, in a will. bit. Yeah. Uh, so it's like you have like a major foreign policy story that just broke and it is eclipsing Kavanaugh. It's even eclipsing the um, the hurricane. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is something, uh, again, listeners, that we're going to be talking a little bit more about on the on the bonus show. So uh, for supporters, we're going to be chatting about that a little bit more. Uh, uh, but continue, Alexandra. So basically, I am not if, if this was an issue that could sustain the media cycle for a few days and then really be used to rally the troops and become central to the debate in some way over the next three weeks until the election, yeah, maybe it is a good move. But in the way that the, um, the Trump administration is operating and the, the way that things happen to the Trump administration and during the Trump administration, it is very hard for me to say that, oh, this one particular move, uh, which is an unusual move, would really have a huge effect. Um, well, let's turn a little bit and maybe talk a little even more in depth about this, because one of the other elements to the story that we have been chatting about has been the numbers that are coming out of the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party for fundraising in the wake of the Kavanaugh nomination and, you know, as part of this campaign strategy. And I'll say, I know many of you listeners are really excited for us to be talking about the midterms. Finally, you've been asking about this. And I think we're finally getting close enough that we can. And you're right. We're still we're still a ways out, Alexandra. But uh, we're beginning to get into the point where this it makes sense to talk about strategy for midterms. Now, both Democrats and Republicans are reporting an increase in funding in the wake of the Kavanaugh confirmation, although in different ways. Um, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee uh, says that it has raised $400,000 in the 30 hours after Ford's testimony, uh, and the DCCC raised $4.38 million from the end of September to October 5th, with, which they are attributing to the hearings. Now, Republicans are staying mum on the specifics, but they are saying that they're seeing increases in percentages themselves. The Republican Congressional Committee reported a 418% increase in donations online from September to October. Now, what does that mean in dollars? We don't know yet. They're, they're being mum on 
that. But, you know, into this conversation about the midterm, you know, how much effect is it going to have? I would also like to, in addition to talking about the money, suggest that we saw that North uh, North Dakota Democrat, uh, Heidekamp, has dipped significantly in the polls after voting against Kavanaugh. And if she goes down, it does mean, indeed, that Democrats cannot gain control of the Senate. And as of uh, us recording the show, she was down by double digits in the polls. So although I know that, uh, you know, we can't, there's other things, there's always intervening events, it's three weeks out as you're talking about, but it does appear that there is being uh, some effect on the uh, on Democrats who have gone against Kavanaugh, and as we move closer in, do you think that this setup uh, from Trump has, has set them up for for success? I mean, again, I recognize that we're still early out, but I think North Dakota is at least a potentially good be benchmark here for the, the outcome of uh, of uh, Democratic senators. What do you think? Well. Uh, the Democrats are faced with several hurdles in this electoral cycle that uh, go way above and beyond the the politics of Kavanaugh or like the OPED, um, but that do does relate to the funding. Uh, I believe that the Democrats need to out fundraise and outspend the Republicans, especially in this cycle, for several reasons if they are to prevail. You're absolutely right. The Senate, first of all, the Senate is an incredibly difficult map for them this year because they are defending Definitely. a lot more positions, which means you have to spread the money to a lot more places than the Republicans normally do. Um, and even if you're safe, you're still spending something. You're not going to leave, um, you know, your, even your strong Democratic uh, strongholds, you're not going to leave them without any support. So mm -hmm. um, on top of that, you have situations where because of the context of the spe specific uh, case, uh, Democrats are spending more than they normally should, like in New Jersey with uh, the Menendez um scandals. Uh, they ended up with a candidate who may be the incumbent, but has severe weaknesses because a lot of people are mad about the ethics violations. So uh, suddenly they're defending a candidate that has ethical problems and they need to spend there. Um, Hyde camp is uh, definitely a really hard one. Yeah. Uh, West Virginia is incredibly difficult, and then Claire McCaskill in Missouri is really hard. Um, then they have to also decide how to handle the opportunity in Nevada, in Arizona, and the really high-risk, high-return uh, opportunity in Texas, which is really uh, low probability but incredibly high return. Yes, um, yes. So you're spreading across many, many uh, more battles, um, and you need a lot more money. Like for better work to fight somebody like uh, Cruz right now, he needs to be spending a lot more. Um, so you know, being the challenger in order to get the awareness, in order to be out there, um, it requires a lot more money. Uh, 
add that on the House side, the fact that given the gerrymandering um, that has taken place in several states, uh, the Democrats essentially need to be, I believe it's about 10 points ahead in order to actually flip cases, uh, to flip seats. Mm-hmm. So because of the way um, the, the, the districts are gerrymandered, it's not, um, you really need to, uh, to hit a much higher bar than uh, without that structural impediment, uh, which also requires a lot more money. Um, well, and, I, and I want to kind of follow up on that a little bit, Alexander, because I think you bring up a good point. And I think it's one that uh, many of our uh, more left-leaning listeners talk about. And that's that's the, the gerrymandering and the advantage at the Republican level. And I think that in some ways, Democrats have set themselves up for this set of failures. You know, it has been a number of years ago now when Republicans made it a real effort to take control of local state governments. And and I think that was a a brilliant and the right strategy. And I think Democrats left that behind. And now they're kind of, they're they're suffering from ignoring those local races. I mean, they could have been part of the the line drawing had they spent more time at the local state level. And and their inability to do that is now costing them at the national level. Uh, So what what, what do you think about that? I couldn't agree more. That has been my criticism of the Obama administration and the Obama strategy for years, because basically, as of 2008, uh, all eyes were at the national level, and uh, the Democrats basically abandoned the state. And what happened was not just that Republicans were elected, it was that the Democrats didn't develop a bench. So you don't have um, enough... Democrats in these mid-level state positions who are competitive to run then for the higher level positions of governor and uh, senator and representative and things like that, because we don't have um, a very strong bench. Um, And these lack of like significant numbers of prominent state legislators on the Democratic side means that who are you going to run who has uh, credibility in the state for statewide elections. So this has been a huge problem that, from what I understand, the Democratic Party has finally come to a realization um, that this was a huge failure on their part. Do you think that's part of the Um, ideological makeup of the parties? I mean, Republicans, you know, we've traditionally been very concerned about the state and local issues because we're the we're the party of of devolution. Uh, And and Democrats, I think, a lot of times want to rally around that singular national figure. And as you're mentioning back in in 2008 with President Obama, it's true. Uh, I think a lot of people on the left were simply not giving that kind of attention. It sounds like we agree on that part, but do you, do you think that's kind of baked in a little bit to the ideological uh, predilections of each of the parties? Um, I think it's more of a very smart realization, especially after Citizens United on the part of some of the more prominent Republican donors that you can flip uh, state elections 
at a much lower price. And because basically all you need to spend in a state legislative election is like $10,000, $20,000, whereas for a, a senatorial election at the national level is in the millions. So the return of investment of turning a state legislature is really high, especially when that state legislature um, in a year like 2010 um, has the ability to redistrict. So understanding that political calculus and targeting your investment there was a brilliant move on the part of, um, of the Republican Party and Republican donors who supported that effort. Yeah, uh, I think that the Democrats just didn't really, they dropped the ball. They didn't pay attention. They were basically so focused on the national institutions um, that they didn't really figure out that this was happening even. Yeah. Well, kind of the backup, because I think that's a really interesting point. But, you know, as we've been kind of talking about that midterm strategy, the effect of Kavanaugh, one kind of last point to finish up on, I'm, I'm curious about your opinion on this, is that I have been hearing both reading online um, and hearing from uh, some of my uh, inside sources. And it's just something that I mean, makes sense to me as well, is that Democrats have kind of assumed that Kavanaugh is going to be a huge blow in the midterms. And I think many Republican strategists basically say, look, who is the Kavanaugh hearing going to animate? And their answer is white college educated women. And but the question becomes, were white college educated women going to be voting for Republicans in the first place anyway? And I think in many of these races, the answer is no. So do you think this really has much of an impact on whether or not we're going to have a blue wave? In other words, will the Kavanaugh hearings really be an important variable? Is this really a swing or is this really just a story that's been really fascinating and incredible because of its uh, the personalities involved rather than having a really big impact on the election, you know, the swing? So in other words, is it more about uh, the, the districting or is it, do you think these kinds of moments like Kavanaugh are going to ha actually have an impact? Especially after the 2016 election and especially after the Trump um, Access Hollywood tape, I don't believe that individual moments actually play such a huge role, uh, especially since we're living in the daily individual moments. Uh, between now and the election, um, I, I could bet you we'll have another five. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's it's not, I don't even think that this is, you know, an exaggeration because we have lived for two years in, in, a, in an administration of daily individual moments. Well, you know, and it's, uh, and it's interesting because one of the elements that we as political scientists have looked at is, you know, we've had this, there's been a long debate over whether or not that nitty gritty that will be called the campaign itself, right, has a meaningful impact on elections or if it's these larger structural variables. And I think for many researchers, we again and again come back to the larger structural variables as, as, as opposed to those day to day events, as, as you described it, which I think is a good way of putting it. But I know for our listeners, though, that that's always a little bit frustrating, right, because this is the thing that they're seeing and they're reading about in the media each week. Uh, and it feels like those moments 
ought to be the moments. Uh, so there's this kind of emotional desire for it to be the Kavanaugh hearing uh, as opposed to those those structural events. Uh, I mean, it kind of seems like you agree with me on that. What do you think? Oh, I absolutely agree. I think that, uh, you know, the day-to-day events is sort of what makes the campaign interesting and has made especially um, this campaign and the 2016 campaign into a soap opera type interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or a reality show, maybe. Exactly. We (laughs) do live in the reality show presidency. Um, But what it comes down to at the end of the day are the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are the economy is doing well, which will work against the Democrats. Um, There is a very strong um, Democratic anger over uh, the, the Trump administration for a variety of reasons that appear every every day, and that's going to work in favor of the Democrats. Um, there is um, the issue of redistricting, which works against the Democrats. The Senate map works against the Democrats. And then you also have this very, very disconcerting um, phenomenon of uh, purging the voter rolls and voter ID laws and uh, a variety of other structural impediments that are going against the Democrats. And the, so the, basically the ability of the Democrats to mobilize a base that is younger, more um, diverse, less committed to politics is a hurdle. And that those structural factors um, are key to really what's going to happen. Now, if the day before the election, we have another major hurricane wiping out um, some state, that could play a role. I mean, there is some evidence from um, political science research that things like that, um, weather phenomena or things that are external to politics could affect on the margin um, political attitudes and behavior. But really what is gonna make the biggest difference in terms of um, the democratic margin uh, is going to be uh, these other uh, pre-existing structural factors and the ability of the Democrats to really, really outspend um, the Republicans and bring their voters to the polls, actually physically bring them to the polls. Well, and you know, as we kind of maybe move away from those stories a little bit, uh, but continuing on this line of thinking about elections and upcoming elections, maybe push this out a little bit, because this week in a really highly unusual bit of timing, uh, Nikki Haley announced her resignation as the U.S. representative to the U.N., and many insiders, both in government and in the news, were really shocked by the revelation, and, and probably not so much the revelation itself, but as the timing of the revelation. And it really, you know, why and why now? And in a bit of preemption, Haley state, uh, stated uh, while sitting next to President Trump, quote, no, I'm not running for 2020, end quote. And I, and I think that's what many of us 
uh, were thinking, and, and I'll be honest, I think many of us are still thinking. Close friends and advisors to Haley have suggested she needs to make some money, and it is openly known because of her disclosures that she has a significant amount of debt, uh, and so that is a plausible answer. But it doesn't rule out a larger set of possibilities, and it doesn't also answer the question of timing. Uh, Cassidy of the New Yorker argued that it's a really smart move for Haley to keep Haley politically viable. And what he's basically reasoning is, is it's also a reason for Democrats to be optimistic, which kind of comes back to our question of the midterm. You know, Haley could have waited until after the midterm to make the decision. Making it now does allow her to avoid getting tainted if there's a loss and the administration kind of uh, grinds to a halt. So it may be far too early to try to figure out, is she, is she not trying to run for the presidency and in which season? But the timing of her announcement may at least be a prediction of her midterm thoughts. So do you think that the Haley announcement coming when it does, do you think it says anything about the uh, some insider's thought on what's going to happen in the midterm? And do you think that her taking this is evidence that maybe Democrats ought to be happy as the New Yorker uh, uh, posits? What do you think about this resignation timing and the announcement? I think that she is very astute and she's taking into account a variety of possible scenarios. Uh, and she has nothing to lose by doing this now. Uh, whereas she is, she could be exposing herself to all kinds of dangers uh, if she waited. Um, because first of all, if the midterms, uh, if the Democrats really prevail on the midterms, uh, and then as of January, we have hearings in the House uh, related to all things and all manner Trump, um, she doesn't need to be associated in any way with any of that. Um, in that way, she's protecting herself from that because uh, a UN ambassador is a crucial foreign policy position. And um, the last thing that she'd want to have is her being hauled in front of the House to explain any behaviors of Jared Kushner or anybody else in the Trump orbit uh, that have to do with Saudi Arabia, with this, with that. By distancing herself at this point, she's saving herself a lot of trouble. I think she's reading the tea leaves right. Um, she doesn't need to be running in 2020. Um, she has time. Uh, basically, she's probably not ready. And as we know from uh, political science uh, literature, at least, um, running from this position of ambassador is not necessarily, even if she is a former governor, um, is not necessarily a very strong um, position to be in the run. She may be considering the possibility, for example, of uh, Trump uh, giving an administration job to her state state senator, um, and um, if uh, 
if that happens, she may be a viable candidate to replace him in the Senate. Um, it's interesting that you say that because I, I agree that I think that the Senate and you, it wasn't that long ago that it's the it would be the gubernatorial experience that would set you up for the presidency. Um, but in this case, the ability to have both would definitely position you for a run. Uh, but, you know, one of the interesting things about you're talking about the timing, it doesn't have to be uh, 2020, and you're absolutely right about that. But one of the interesting things about timing is, so if 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 that isn't the year that she's thinking about, you do have the problem of if, if Trump is successful, uh, and that's a whole nother, another question, you then have to, of course, contend with another four, eight years with a Pence, uh, the, the traditional VP running for uh, re-election or you know, running for re-election on, on the on the president's continuation of his term. So you're right; it's it's a fascinating strategy, but it, it's far enough out that you know most of this is kind of not kind of it's very speculatory. But as it relates to the midterms, I think you're right. There, it's a no loss for her to leave now. So even if she thought it's a coin toss, why not pull out now? There's nothing to be gained by staying longer anyway and by making the announcement now. And then the other possibility, and I don't know how much this is, given when it was coming, it could have also been an attempt. Maybe even Trump said, hey, I know you want to resign. Do it now. By being weird and unusual, it is going to suck some of the other story oxygen out of the room. It could have been an attempt to kind of take a little bit of the the uh, the wind out of the sails of what was going on with Kavanaugh. But again, that's all, again, just speculation. You know, I'm not sure. And I'm, I'm not sure how much more you might want to add on that, Alexandra. It, the timing in terms of like the the actual point in time rather than the before the midterm election part because there are two things like uh resigning before the election the midterm election or announcing it and announcing it right after the Kavanaugh situation those are two different calculations i think that she's obviously been thinking about this uh for a while and sort of figuring out what might be best for her. Um, it's not, she she didn't wake up last week and said, you know what I want to do today is resign. Um, and um, so I think that basically uh, the important thing, yes, it is possible that from an optics perspective and from a, a political sort of uh, strategy perspective, the week of the announcement may be related to let's give something new shiny to the media to deal with. Um, but her announcement to uh, resign before the midterm, I think, is far more calculated and I think like astutely cal calculated um, to basically avoid being branded with anything that may happen as of January, because her two years as an ambassador gives her what she didn't have, which was the foreign policy experience. Mm -hmm. um, so she, she checks all the right boxes when it comes to running for president uh, in the future. Uh, and yes, you're right. There is the, the vice president is the likely successor of the president after um, a uh, a run like this, but Pence 
is kind of a very interesting candidate. He doesn't have uh, Trump's, I hesitate to use the word charisma. Uh, <laughs> but there, but there, is, there is some of that. You're right. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. Ability to attract attention is probably the appropriate way of putting it, uh, which is important in politics. Um, he is far more subdued and compared to Trump, you know, he just doesn't have um, the personality and he's never um, going to be the guy who who's making the, the early morning tweets. That's just that's just not his style. You're right. Exactly. It's not his style. And also, you know, he, in comparison, he looks absolutely dour and boring. Um, so I don't think that he is the guy who will sustain the enthusiasm and the imagination of the base. Also, so he's I Al Gore, think... basically. Yes. <laughs> in many ways, he's Al Gore. And actually, he's in a more difficult position than Al Gore, even, because in addition to being boring, he is not, I don't think that he has the flair or the stomach to actually say the stuff that Trump seems to be Say, like to say the, the kind of rhetoric, the rhetorical strategy, the race baiting and the direct bigotry and the sexism and the lock her up. I just cannot see Pence standing in front of like thousands of people and engaging with them to chant lock her up. It's not, he's like a much more traditional politician uh, in their his views may be incredibly conservative but in terms of his rhetorical style and the way he approaches politics is not as an entertainer which is what Trump is yes so I don't see him even if Trump makes it through um, 2020 and if he does you know there is also the scenario that, yes, he gets reelected, but he gets reelected with a Democratic a House and Senate. Right. And, and I think it becomes – and that's an interesting question. It's just not – I'm not comfortable trying to, to figure out what that is. It's too far down the line. And again, I yeah. know our listeners, they always really want those – those really early predictions and we constantly are pushing back a little bit and saying, well, you know, you got to get a little bit closer, <laughs> but you know, I agree with you on that, but I would like to kind of pivot just a little bit to our last story as we uh, begin to run out of time. Uh, and that's on Jamal uh, Khashoggi. Uh, Khashoggi is a prominent uh, Saudi and lives in Virginia journalist for the Washington post and he, well, I should say his murder has prompted a really big divide between Republicans in Congress and President Trump at, at a very awkward time. And you'd mentioned this earlier um, because Trump has continued to call the relationship with Saudi Arabia excellent, although there appears to be a lot of evidence to suggest that Saudi Arabia either directly or indirectly arranged for him to be killed. And as a matter of fact, uh, as we right before we were going into the recording of the show, uh, it appeared on Friday that Turkey had actually released some audiovisual evidence of the murder 
uh, and, and linking it to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so Trump has really kind of stood by Saudi Arabia and the relationship. But at the same time, Republican senators have not been so happy. As a matter of fact, I'll just point to Senator Rand Paul, who said, quote, the Saudis will keep killing civilians and journalists as long as we keep arming and assisting them. The president should immediately halt arms sales and military support to Saudi Arabia. Uh, but Mr. Trump quickly made clear that he wasn't going to do anything of the sort. Uh, he said, quote, what good does that do us, end quote, when he was speaking to uh, reporters uh, that same day. So what do you think about uh, the murder? I mean, obviously, there's still evidence to be gathered, but it seems that at this juncture, it's hard to, to imagine a scenario where Saudi Arabia is not involved. So the real story becomes, what is uh, the United States reaction to this, uh, what ought that reaction to be? And it appears that between Senate Republicans and Republicans on the Hill and uh, President Trump, that there appears to be a, a, a very different response. So what, what do you think about that response? This Trump's response basically goes against fundamental principles of the Republican Party and even of the Republican Party of George uh, of George W. Bush, uh, which but that, but isn't that, I mean, essentially... Hasn't that been the, 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 the Trump that we know? I mean, one of the reasons, as listeners know, that I mean, uh, that I have had an issue with him is he isn't. He, he has not. I mean, this is the guy who says for on other foreign policy issues that we need to erect trade barriers, which is the exact opposite of the Republican Party. But here, I mean, the economic arena is one thing, but here you're talking about an even deeper uh, set of commitments to classical liberalism, to human liberty, to um, Lockean ideals of, uh, that relate to the way democracy is supposed to function in the United States. And part of the rationale for why the Republicans um, were so dead set in terms of invading Iraq and Afghanistan was to bring democracy to those people um, and to bring the the ideals, not of any kind of democratic regime, but specifically a liberal democracy, because that's what we are and who we are and that's what we represent. And now to have a president who... Um, actually espouses the idea that, yes, it's very sad that um, a journalist may have been killed at the direct order of the Saudi prince. Yes, uh, an American uh, uh, resident, permanent resident, and uh, um, with ties to this country that has been killed at the direct order, at the behest of the Saudi king. It is very unfortunate, but we have more serious business to deal with, which is money. That goes against even the fig leaf, leaf of the Republican Party representing some kind of principle. Um, so I think it's really, really hard on the normative end for a lot of Republicans, or I hope it is, to accept this decision. At the same time, um, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States um, has always been kind of problematic. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not... 
it's not the same uh, type of uh, unquestionable and unequivocal loyalty as it is with Britain, as it is with even Israel in many ways. Um, Saudi Arabia, we have always had this uncomfortable relationship with them, which is basically the idea that the enemies of our enemies are our friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are going to overlook certain things up to a limit because Saudi Arabia sort of plays the other regional pole to Iran. And in that sense is good for our interests there. And yes, they have a lot of oil, which we also want, but also it's like the, I think that the dynamics, the political dynamics in the region are such that it made realistic sense for the U.S. to sort of just um, ignore some of the really uh, unacceptable normative things that are going on there in terms of human rights and the treatment of women and all kinds of things like that, mm -hmm. and um, and support, provide military aid, and basically support them in Yemen. I mean. Like the fact that you have a, a war that's leading to a famine uh, and children dying is pretty horrific, but we don't talk about that. Very yeah. Much. Well, and, you um, know, and, and in all honesty, as we kind of uh, as we kind of conclude on this, it, it to me, and, and you had said earlier, you know, it kind of goes against that, that classical liberal international view, and I couldn't agree with you more on that front. Being a, a classical liberal myself, and, and what I see this as being in some ways is it's the legacy of the neoconservative foreign policy, which I, I think was disastrous. And Trump, I don't I don't think that he's attempting to be a neocon per se, uh, but this this continues the kind of the Trumpian, if you will, unique and breaking from Republican foreign policy. And I, I don't I don't think that and if you take a look at the break between Congress and, and, and the president, I think it's pretty obvious that uh, your, your more traditional Republicans in the House and the Senate see this as being a, a horrendous position and, and movement to take. It'll be interesting to see if how Trump continues to respond, because we know that one of the you know, Trump will evolve his positions as he moves along. I think that's kind of an apparent go. And this might be a story we'll have to to continue to come back to. But I want to say it's been a lot of fun uh, talking with you, Alexandria. I hope you've enjoyed being on the show today. It's been great. Yes, absolutely, Trey. Well, and I want listeners to know, as always, we appreciate those of you who support the politics, guys. Uh, by supporting us, you make this show possible. And one of the ways that we try to give back to you is we have the bonus show. And so in just a moment, Alexandra and I are going to be recording the bonus show. And this week on the bonus show, we're going to be talking about some really fascinating uh, topics. So, for example, we're going to be talking about the hurricane in Florida, near and dear to my heart. Uh, the UN report uh, challenged by Trump on uh, climate change. We're also going to be talking about the Fed, the Fed rates, the market downturn, and some of Trump's response to the Fed. So please join us on the bonus show. And if you aren't a supporter, and if that sounds like a lot of fun, please head on to the website at politicsguys.com slash support, or head to politicsguys.com and click on support. And by supporting the show, you'll get access to that bonus show and to all of our bonus shows. So that's it. We hope that you like what you've heard. And I'm 
and ask listeners, please give us your feedback on Alexandra, uh, both on social media and on the website. And again, you can do that at politicsguys.com or you can head to politicsguys.com and click on support for that bonus show. As always, if you, uh, you love it when you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, share episodes, rate episodes. It puts us higher on the list and that's what we need uh, for all of your feedback. So if I make another mistake, please send that to mail at politicsguys.com. You can also catch us in our always fascinating debates on Facebook at facebook.com slash politicsguys page or on Twitter at politicsguys. I also appreciate all the thoughts that you had. I know I wasn't feeling so well last time. I'm back to my normal self. So thanks for your thoughts, your prayers. Uh, I, I deeply appreciate that. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. This episode is produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll have a new show next week. We hope you'll join us then.